Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, probably some of you came to church today expecting to continue in Hebrews. If you're just visiting with us, uh, we've just started a new series in, in that book, the book of Hebrews. But uh, don't worry, Keith is back next week and we will keep going together in that book. But this morning we're taking a little detour to dip into a very different book of the same Bible, the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's my hope that this dip into Proverbs chapter 8 this morning will enrich our time in Hebrews by showing us many of the same things from a really different angle. I'm sure some of us are familiar with Proverbs, but I'm sure some of us aren't. So let me just begin by giving a quick description of that whole book. Most of the book of Proverbs is attributed to King Solomon, David's son and his successor. Early in his rule, as you can read in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon was given by God the gift of a wise mind. And the bulk of this book consists of a long series of wise sayings, Proverbs, that are meant to teach the reader how to live a good life. And most of those Proverbs are attributed to King Solomon, which could mean either that he came up with them or that he collected them, probably a bit of both. But there are also Proverbs attributed to someone named Agur, son of Jacah, about whom we know nothing. And there are other Proverbs attributed to the mother of someone named King Lemuel. Interestingly, King Lemuel and his mother don't appear anywhere else in the Bible, which means, for one thing, that King Lemuel must have been a foreign king, not a king of Israel or Judah. And then there are many other Proverbs attributed simply to the wise, to anonymous wise people. And those Proverbs themselves mostly deal with everyday matters like work, money, family, and getting along with your neighbors. Some of them give pretty direct advice, and some of them are very open-ended, making an observation about how the world works, and then leaving it to the reader to decide what the appropriate response is. Many of the Proverbs use insightful and funny imagery from the natural world. They compare different kinds of people to lions or lizards or leeches. And all of these Proverbs, or most of them, are found in the second and largest half of the book of Proverbs, in chapters 10 to 31. But, of course, today we're reading from the first part of the book, chapters 1 to 9. And in those introductory chapters, we don't find a big list of short proverbs, like in the rest of the book. Instead, we find a shorter series of longer speeches. First, there's a series of lectures given by a loving father and mother to their son. And they urge him to follow in their good example, not to associate with the, with the bandits and adulterers who are trying to befriend him. And alongside those parental speeches, we find scenes and speeches involving two female characters, wisdom and folly. And wisdom and folly compete for the attention of the reader in a series of scenes. Wisdom first calls out back in chapter one, warning that it will be disastrous for us if we don't pay attention to her. Then in chapter seven, we meet folly and she's dressed as a prostitute and we watch as she seduces a young man in the dead of night. 
in chapter 8, our text today, wisdom calls out for a second time, extolling her virtues. And in chapter 9, wisdom and folly each make one last invitation. Each of them tries to convince the reader to follow her back to her house. Wisdom's invitation is to a hearty and nutritious feast. And folly's invitation is a trap that leads only to Sheol, the land of the dead. So as a whole unit, chapters 1 to 9 are meant to present the reader with a stark choice between these two characters and their two invitations. Will we allow ourselves to be seduced by folly and her false promises? Or will we listen to wisdom and follow her as she leads us faithfully to the feast of life and favor with the Lord? This is the framework in which the rest of the book is meant to make sense. Those little individual proverbs, you could think of them like pavement stones or signposts along the larger way of wisdom. So there's my brief summary of the book of Proverbs, which is well worth reading in its entirety if you have some time this week. That's just to situate us as we look at chapter 8 this morning. As I said, chapter 8 is wisdom's second of three speeches. And it's probably the one where she gives us the fullest and most profound portrait of who she is. As we turn to our chapter, right away we can notice that wisdom's not hiding from us, right? She's calling out to us loudly and clearly. She wants to tell us about herself, to tell us who she is. So if we pay attention to her call, I think we can expect to learn this morning three things about her. First, her character, what she's like. Second, wisdom's relationship with God. And third, wisdom's relationship with the created world, especially with us. So that's our outline for today. First, the character of wisdom. Second, wisdom's relationship with God. And third, her relationship with the created world and with us. So please have your Bibles open to chap uh, chapter 8 if you can. You'll see there that wisdom tells us about her character, about what she's like, especially in verses 6 to 21. And we can only touch on a few of the many ways she describes herself here. In verses 6 to 9, she tells us first about her words. She speaks what is true and right. She does not speak wickedly or crookedly. We need the voice of wisdom in our lives because most of the voices that we hear are not like hers, are they? In the media that we consume, the news articles, subway ads and political speeches, and in the conversations that we overhear between people who are trying to act cool or seem really smart, and in our own inner voice, when we talk to ourselves, maybe as we lie in bed at night. From all those voices, we hear a little bit that's true and a lot that isn't true. In the midst of all this crooked speech, wisdom alone can say the right thing and can tell the truth. In verses 10 and 11, wisdom tells us that her instruction is worth more than silver or gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Again, in verse 19, she says, My fruit is better than gold, even than fine gold, and my yield is better than choice silver. 
But wait, maybe we can have both, gold and wisdom. After all, look at verse 18. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. And in verse 21, wisdom promises to fill the treasuries of those who love her. Sounds great. Well, we have to be a bit careful here. On the one hand, the book of Proverbs does teach that there's a connection between wise living and wealth. Because the whole world was created in wisdom, and we'll talk much more about this, it's of course true that whatever work we do in the world will be more productive, more fruitful, if we do it wisely than if we do it foolishly. It stands to reason. On the other hand, at the same time, the book of Proverbs teaches that that connection between wise living and wealth is not absolute. It's not for sure, especially because the world created in wisdom has been disordered by sin. So yes, the Proverbs are full of people who become wealthy through wisdom and people who fall into poverty because of their foolishness. But they're equally full of wise people who live and die in poverty and of rich people who are foolish or wicked. For example, Proverbs 28 verse 6, and this is just one example of many possible ones, says, better is a poor man with integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. The Proverbs warn us against becoming rich in certain ways, like by dishonesty or predatory money lending. They teach us that if we do become wealthy, it will be our blessedness, in the words of Proverbs 22 verse 9, to share our bread with the poor. So wisdom is right both when she says that riches and honor are with me, and when she says, take my instruction instead of silver. We all at some point or other in our lives, possibly many times, have to make that choice between riches and wisdom. And to the wise person, that choice is a no-brainer. Material wealth is good, but wisdom is infinitely better. Wisdom goes on to associate herself with prudence, knowledge, and discretion, with counsel, insight, and strength, with righteousness and justice. She tells us in verses 15 to 16 that kings rule by me, and rulers decree what is just. Of course, there are plenty of kings who do not rule according to wisdom and who do not decree what is just. What wisdom is telling us is that all those who do govern justly do so by attending to her voice. And this applies not only to literal kings or to other kinds of rulers, prime ministers and presidents, it applies to all who are in any kind of authority, to teachers, managers, parents, small group leaders. We can only exercise authority justly if we exercise it according to wisdom. Authority exercised in folly always becomes some kind of oppression or abuse. This is true not only in relations of authority between human beings, it's certainly true there, it's also true in the authority that all humankind exercises in common over the earth. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, God tells the man and the woman to subdue the earth, 
and to have dominion over every form of life in it. Under God, we are all kings and queens of creation. But our dominion can only be just and life-giving if we attend to the wisdom according to which creation was made. In verse 13, wisdom associates herself with the fear of the Lord. You may know that that expression, the fear of the Lord, occurs again and again in the book of Proverbs. Toward the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And again, toward the very end of the book, in chapter 31, verse 30, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And about a dozen times in between, both in these introductory chapters and in chapters 10 to 31. Now, when the book of Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not talking about the kind of fear that would cause us to run away from the Lord or to hide from him. Quite the opposite. The Bible knows about that kind of fear. And in Genesis chapter 3, among other places, it tells us that that fear is nothing but the result of sin, of disobedience to God. God never wants us to have that kind of fear toward him. Instead, in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord means to live in awe of him, to recognize that we are nothing without him, not to trust in anything except the Lord. If we fear the Lord wisely, we will run toward him and away from evil, knowing that only he can take away the sin that damages our relationship with him. So, verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Wisdom hates evil because she wisely fears and loves the Lord. This gets us into wisdom's relationship with the Lord, and we hear her tell us more about that in the next section of our chapter, in verses 22 to 31. She opens with this astounding claim in verses 22 and 23. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. <clears throat> Wisdom tells us that she was already there with God in the beginning, before creation. In case we missed the point, it's spelled out for us in great and poetic detail in verses 24 to 29. To really appreciate those verses, we can think back to the story of creation at the beginning of the Bible. At the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, Nothing exists yet. Everything is formless and void. And one of the poetic images used to describe this void is something called the deep, the deep waters. Water doesn't hold any shape, right? It's formless. And deep water especially has connotations of hiddenness and chaos. If you lose something in deep water, You'll never find it again. It's practically like it doesn't exist. So when God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, one of the ways he does it is to push back against the deep. To put the waters in their place and put limits on the deep so that the sky and the earth can appear. 
what seems like an endless elemental force of chaos, the cold, unfeeling nothingness that could swallow up everything. It turns out to be no match for the Lord. He says about himself in Job 41, verse 31, he makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. So getting back to Proverbs chapter 8, what wisdom tells us in verses 24 to 29 is that she was brought forth before any of these things, before God established the heavens, before he made the earth, even before the deep. Look at verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Wisdom was with God before anything else existed, even before the formless and void stuff existed. And when God began to create, wisdom was not only there, but she was, she tells us in verse 30, beside him, like a master workman. The character of wisdom presents herself as having been a skilled collaborator in God's creative work. He couldn't have done it the way he did it without her. So let's pause here to acknowledge that this is a bit weird, right? <laughs> Don't some of the things I'm saying, or some of the things that wisdom herself is saying, seem borderline blasphemous, or maybe even across the line? If only God is eternal, then how can this wisdom character be eternal? If God alone is the all-powerful creator of everything, then how can he have had wisdom as his helper in creation? Is Josiah setting wisdom up, or is wisdom setting herself up as some kind of goddess, a rival to God? Somebody, call the bishop! <laughs> or maybe that's not what you're thinking at all. Maybe you're thinking, relax, Josiah. It's fine that wisdom is talking about herself in terms reserved for God, because she's just the personification of one of God's attributes. When the Bible says that God possessed wisdom, that she was with him in the beginning, and that she helped him create the world, the point is just that God is wise, that he's always been wise, and that he created the world wisely. The character of wisdom is just a poetic device, not a real person. Well, look, certainly it's true that God is wise, that he's been wise forever, and that he created the world wisely. And certainly it's true that God alone is eternal, and that he alone is the creator of all things. But can we really say that the character of wisdom in this chapter is nothing more than a poetic device? We've been talking about this character's relationship to God in ways that seem to stretch the limits of what makes sense for a literary personification of an abstract quality. Maybe it's possible to talk about God having a relationship with his attributes, but it sure isn't the normal way that the Bible talks, right? We never read anything like, God possessed me glory at the beginning of his works, or I, God's omnipresence, was beside him when he established the heavens. The way that this passage talks about God's wisdom is at the very least unusual. And there's one more aspect of the relationship between God and wisdom we haven't yet touched on. 
So let's look now at the whole of verse 30. I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. God delights in wisdom, and she rejoices in him. Between God and his wisdom, there's a relationship of mutual delight, of joyfully reciprocal love. Does this make sense if wisdom is only an attribute of God? Sure, God can love his attributes, but can they love him back? Can a literary device rejoice before God? Or is it only a real person that can return love to God in this way? Following in the footsteps of many faithful readers throughout church history, I believe we're meant to hear wisdom's voice in Proverbs chapter 8 as the voice of a real person, as the voice of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, we hear him called the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were made. In Hebrews chapter 1, we heard him called the Son of God, through whom God has spoken and through whom also he created the world. And in Proverbs chapter 8, we hear him speak in the character of God's eternal wisdom, the master workman who was beside God in creation and by whom he founded the earth. Jesus is the one who lives in a relationship of mutual love and delight with the Father. We see this all over the Gospels, as when God spoke to Jesus at his baptism, saying in Mark 1 verse 11, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Or when Jesus, speaking his, to his disciples before his arrest, told them in John chapter 14 verse 30, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. In Proverbs chapter 8 verse 30, we see that this mutual love and pleasure between the Father and the Son extends beyond Jesus' earthly ministry, back before his incarnation, back before creation itself. Already at the beginning, I was daily his delight, and I rejoiced before him always. So, of course, Solomon, or whoever wrote this passage, was living centuries before the Son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Though it has always been true that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and though God's people Israel already at that time had glimpses of that reality, they of course did not have the knowledge of, real of that reality that we now do on this side of Jesus' earthly life, his death and his resurrection. But, as is so often the case in Scripture, the human author of a given passage may understand only part of what God, who is the ultimate author and owner of Scripture, intends to say through that passage. We see this throughout the New Testament, and we'll see it again and again in Hebrews as we go through that book together. That after Jesus' death, resurrection, and glorious ascension, the Holy Spirit of God led the church to interpret the whole Old Testament as testifying to Jesus Christ. 
This meant reading Old Testament passages in surprising new ways, in ways that the original author and original audience probably could not have imagined. It's important to say that there are limits to this. A passage can mean more than its original author intended, but that new meaning never contradicts the original meaning. That's the case here. God gave the author of Proverbs chapter 8 a deep and insightful way of describing divine wisdom. That we now, in light of what God has spoken through his son in these last days, can appreciate even more profoundly. By reading this chapter in the voice of Jesus, we don't contradict or deny its original meaning, but we flesh out that meaning in light of what God has shown us in his son. So we've talked about wisdom's relationship with God and how we can see in it a picture of the son's relationship with God the Father. We've talked about wisdom's character. And of course, this too can be for us a picture of the son's character. Who is it whose words are right and true, who's worth more than gold, and who hates evil and perfectly fears and loves the Lord? Jesus, the son of God, of course. And making this connection between wisdom and the sun can also beautifully illuminate the third thing I said we were going to talk about, wisdom's relationship with the created world. We've already seen, of course, that wisdom is co-creator with God. But that's not the extent of her relationship to creation. Moving on from verse 30 to verse 31, we see that wisdom rejoicing in God always also rejoices over his creation. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom rejoices in God's world and more particularly in God's inhabited world, in the children of man. That's us, humankind. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think we are mentioned here in this verse? As we've already seen, wisdom didn't just help create humankind, she helped create everything. The seas, the skies, the fields, hills, and mountains. So think of your favorite mountain or your favorite beach, your favorite forest or river, your favorite plant or animal. All of these things were made by God through wisdom. And indeed, he loves them all. He loves all his creation. So why aren't any of those things singled out in verse 31? Why is it that wisdom takes special pleasure in us? the human inhabitants of this world. As we sang in our opening hymn this morning, all things can their creator bless. Just by being themselves, all creatures point to the wisdom of God. Stinging nettle, a plant that will burn your skin if you touch it, likes to grow in the same soil as jewelweed, a plant that can relieve that sting. 
The Earth's stable axial tilt creates regular seasons for life on this planet. Animals like to breathe in the same stuff that plants like to breathe out, and vice versa. Creation is full of neat systems like this, of things that just work really well together. And they testify to the truth that God orders and upholds all of his creation in wisdom. When a turtle's shell is hard, just as God intended that it should be, or when a tree's leaves change to a new beautiful color in the fall, just as God imagined they would. That turtle and that tree bring glory to God and to his wisdom. Like every other creature, humans bring glory to God just by being what we are. But we are the most delightful part of the world in the eyes of God's wisdom, because we can do one more thing on top of that. We are the only part of creation that receives a call from wisdom. And we're the only part that can respond to that call. Her first words in this chapter, in verse 4, are, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. Now, men here, of course, includes women and men. It includes Israelites like King Solomon and Gentiles like King Lemuel, all of humankind. But it doesn't include the trees and the turtles. We humans receive this unique call because God made us able to respond to his wisdom in a unique way. Not only passively, by just being what we can't help but be, but also actively in the ways that we choose to explore his creation, to work in it, and to live with each other in it. When we do math, or when we compose music, when we read great books and think about what they mean, or when we play with a child, we're engaging with aspects of God's wisdom, like meaning, logic, and imagination, that are closed off to the trees and the turtles. We're seeking out and discovering aspects of God's wise creation that only we can seek out and reveal. And that's delightful to God's wisdom. When we share food with each other, when we tell each other the truth, or give each other thoughtful advice, when we marry and love our spouses faithfully, or when we make friends and stick by our friends in hard times, all things that the book of Proverbs tells us to do. When we choose to live in ways that just fit with the wisdom by which God created his world, then we testify to God's wisdom in a uniquely human way. God's wisdom rejoices to see us living that way. Things like meaning, math, and marriage are only possible for us humans because God ordered the world wisely and because he made us specially able to share in his wisdom and to imitate it. But into the world ordered by God, our sin introduces disorder. So instead of using language to understand the order of the world, we speak crookedly and we use language to manipulate or confuse other people. 
instead of using natural science to govern the world like just kings and queens, we exploit knowledge selfishly and damage our bodies, our neighbors, and the non-human world. We use our capacity for relationship to take advantage of others instead of to serve them. Instead of diligently seeking after God's wisdom, we decide what's good and what's evil all on our own. We create our own alternative wisdom. In short, in a world created by and for wisdom, we live in the way of folly. So no wonder that the way we live doesn't work. Wisdom says, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. So when humankind abandons wisdom, of course, all that's left for us is poverty, shame, enduring misery and injustice. As wisdom warns us in verse 36 at the end of this chapter, he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. But though we have abandoned wisdom, wisdom has not abandoned us. Listen, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. As the book of Proverbs testifies, wisdom is still crying out loudly to humankind, even after our fall into sin. She's crying out at the crossroads, at the gates of the city. In other words, in the most public and heavily trafficked places possible to get the word out. Her cry is to all the children of men, even, especially, look at verse five, to the simple ones and to fools, to those who are not yet walking in her way. That's who she's seeking out. So how does wisdom call out to us? She calls out in scripture, in the record of God's mighty acts in the midst of his people, which God caused to be written down and which he's still sending out into all the nations. She calls out in the order of creation itself, which testifies to the wisdom of its creator, so that any human mind that inquires deeply about biology or astrophysics or philosophy or justice is pointed to the one who stands behind all of those things. But above all, she calls out to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul calls Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. And he tells us how Christ destroyed the wisdom of the world, that alternative wisdom that we created in our sin. He destroyed the wisdom of the world by dying what looked to the world like a weak and foolish death. In his great love for God's inhabited world and for the children of man, he came down into that world to inhabit it himself as a son of man. The wisdom of God died a cruel human death 
to destroy the power of sin and death, to destroy the works of folly. And rising again to new life, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which in many places in scripture is called the spirit of wisdom, who teaches us anew how to live in the way of wisdom. He sends his people out into all nations to proclaim at the crossroads and at the city gates the invitation to the feast that he has prepared. He will eat that feast with us on the day he returns to restore his world to the order for which it was wisely created. You and I were created to diligently seek out wisdom and to find her. But praise God, when we were in folly, Christ, the wisdom of God himself, sought us out and found us. So hear the closing words of his call as we finish this sermon in verses 32 to 36. Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my way. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.